Protestants everywhere wear crosses, just like this one here. And despite what you might hear on podcasts like the Whatever Podcast, Why are you wearing the cross? Because I think it's cute. It's not because they're cute. It means something to us. It means that Jesus died on this Roman instrument of execution. But why does that matter? What does it matter that Jesus died? What did that do? What did it accomplish? That's what we're talking about today. My name is Stephen Cram, and this is my apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you think Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are a power couple? I'm asking you for an apology. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. So today in our Mere Christianity series, we've gotten to book two, chapter four of the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And in it, he starts to talk about Jesus and his whole purpose here on earth. He says, what did he come to do? Well, to teach, of course. But as soon as you look into the New Testament or any other Christian writing, you will find that they are constantly talking about something different, about his death and his coming to life again. It is obvious that Christians think the chief point of the story lies here. They think the main thing he came to earth to do was to suffer and be killed. We as Christians don't think that Jesus was just a good teacher. We think that the main thing about his life was actually his death. That was what was most important. And so this is what we're going to talk about today. This whole idea is wrapped up in the word atonement, which means the reconciliation between God and humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. How Jesus' life, death, and resurrection repaired that relationship. The goal of this video is in our first section, we're going to talk about five possible theories that you could have for how the atonement works, how Jesus' death can be applied to us and save us. So that'll be the first part of the video. And then the second part of the video, we'll go over what Lewis says is his theory of the atonement. And we'll discuss how that compares to the five that we listed out in the first portion. So let's go over our list. We're going to hit five possible theories for how this works. And this might seem a little strange to you at first if you're not familiar with the whole idea of atonement and atonement theory. Because Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. Shouldn't we have figured out by now how exactly our whole idea of salvation works? How it is that salvation plays out in our lives? And Lewis actually speaks to this in chapter 4. He says, Now before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of this dying the death of Jesus, was. What I came to see later on was that neither this theory nor any other is Christianity. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death had somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how this works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. And he goes on to actually compare it with nutrition. And how in modern day, we understand nutrition pretty well. We know about micronutrients and macronutrients and the fact that you need the right amount of protein in your diet and that potassium is important and all these other things. People go to college to study these theories about nutrition. But for all of human history, people ate their dinner and they received nutrition by eating food and it worked for them. They knew if I eat food, I continue on living. So that simple fact is true for all humans. And then you can go on further and learn all the theories of nutrition and how everything works. You can become keto or vegan, all that kind of stuff. But nutrition at a very baseline works for everyone. Similarly, understanding that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that story saves us, is the bottom line truth that all Christians have to believe. The specifics of how exactly that works out, 
That's the deeper atonement theory that we're going to talk about today. And that's not what's necessary. You don't have to have the one particularly right theory in order for the whole grand story of Jesus to be applied to you and save you. So with that being said, the stakes aren't too high here, but it's helpful to understand these different theories because it helps us see Jesus rightly. So let's get started with our list. Number one is called the theory of the moral exemplar or the moral influencer. And this first theory is the least spiritual of the theories. And it's basically just that Jesus's life and death gives us a good moral example to live by. So in his life, he taught good things. He taught us rightly about God. He taught us rightly about ourselves. And if we live out his teachings, we'll lead a better life. And then in his death, he was essentially a martyr. And that has implications for us personally, because it impacts us that, man, this guy died a martyr's death. How much more should we be encouraged to live like him because he cared so much about the cause that he was willing to die for it? So that should affect us personally and encourage us to live his teachings out. But then also politically and socially, his death as a martyr impacted people to follow him and actually overthrow political power structures that existed at the time. And you see Christianity taking over the Roman Empire and eventually becoming dominant because people were encouraged by his martyrdom. And as I said, this theory is not particularly spiritual. It doesn't really have any components of us becoming right with God in a spiritual or supernatural sense, but rather it's more sociological. At the risk of sounding belittling, it kind of makes Jesus a Jewish Gandhi who teaches good things, gives his life for a cause, and has great social impact. So that's the first one. That's the moral exemplar theory. Second, we have the ransom theory. And this one's actually ancient. Moral, the moral exemplar is a much more modern, as you probably can imagine, a much more modern interpretation of Jesus's work. But when you talk about ransom theory, the second one on the list, this is very, very early. And this is a theory that by sinning, humanity has willingly put itself into the camp of Satan. We are under Satan's rule in kind of like a hostage type situation. And if you're a hostage, what's the hope? The hope is that some hostage negotiator will offer to your captor, something that the captor wants, and he'll let you go. And so in this case, Satan owns humanity, and God wants us back. He wishes to free us from this hostage situation. So what he does is he offers up Jesus as a potential acceptable trade for Satan to acknowledge. There's a great quote from Gregory of Nyssa, and he says, When the enemy saw the power, he recognized in Christ a bargain, which offered him more than he held. For this reason, he chose him as the ransom for those whom he had shut up in death's prison. And so in this early church quote, you have Satan who owns all of humanity and we're all going into death. Then he sees Christ, this guy who is doing miracles. He's raising the dead. He is casting out demons. He clearly has great power and is of great worth. And he says to himself, that man hasn't sinned, so he doesn't belong to me yet. But if I can kill him, that would be an acceptable trade for all these humans that I have that are basically worthless in comparison with Jesus. And so he makes the trade. He initiates through Judas the death of Jesus and gives humanity over to God. The trade is made. And ultimately, this culminates in a great trick in which point Jesus reveals who he is. He resurrects from the dead and, Jesus, and Satan ends up getting nobody in the deal. He doesn't get humanity. He doesn't get Jesus. He is duped. And that's ransom theory. There are lots of shades of this theory that we can't really get into. And I don't even know that much about. But this is an overview of what ransom theory is. Our third theory we're going to talk about today is kind of the opposite of ransom theory. And this is going to be what's called satisfaction theory. Whereas ransom theory, you have the devil being owed something 
in satisfaction theory, you have God being owed something. This theory was first popularized by Anselm, one of the greatest Christian minds of the 11th century, and he taught that something was owed to God that Jesus satisfied, thus satisfaction theory. And in the works of Jesus, God is satisfied, and thus humanity can be restored to him. One of the most popular forms of satisfaction theory today is what most Protestants are probably familiar with, and it's called penal substitutionary atonement. And this was made popular by the reformers in the reformed movement, as well as the Lutheran movement. And it introduces legal elements, a legal understanding of what's going on. Thus the word penal, which if you think about in the U.S., the penal code or the penal system being how our judicial system punishes criminals, that's kind of the thought process that's being introduced into understanding satisfaction theory. And so in this theory, because we've sinned, we've earned the punishment of death. That's what's owed to God, and that's what needs to be satisfied. Jesus having not sinned ever in his life, is able to willingly give himself to satisfy that punishment for all of us, thus freeing us by satisfying God, and we're able to restore that relationship in Jesus Christ. So that's an overview of satisfaction theory and a specific type that you may have heard before in penal substitutionary atonement. Our fourth theory is called Christus Victor. And this theory is ancient. It has lots of people attesting to it throughout history. But as far as it becoming a coherent and simply stated theory of Christus Victor, it's a more recent thing. It's based off of a book by a man named Gustav Aulin, which was written in 1931. And he was the first one to coin the term Christus Victor, which means Christ is victorious or something similar to that. It's really related to both ransom theory and satisfaction theory. You'll hear a lot of the same kinds of thought processes going into it. But in this Christus Christus Victor view, neither the devil nor God is owed anything. Instead, Jesus' work on the cross and his death defeats evil, sin, and death, making Christ the ultimate victor over everything. He takes all of that evil, all of that sin, all of the hardships that the world has to offer on himself and dies. But then in the resurrection, he proves himself bigger. He breaks the power of all those evil things, and thus we are no longer held captive by those dark powers. So that's Christus Victor. Christ is victorious. And finally, fifth, we have recapitulation theory. Now that is a heck of a word, recapitulation, but it's a really cool concept, and the theory kind of relies on this whole imagery of Christ as the second Adam. And I'll explain. The word recapitulation means to summarize and repeat something again. And in my opinion, the best explanation of this comes in music. When you have a recapitulation of a theme in a soundtrack specifically, like, for example, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. The first time you hear, go with me here, if, you, if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, hopefully you'll still get this. But in the second movie, you hear the theme of Rohan for the first time. And it's when your main characters are riding into this capital city that has become dilapidated. This once great, powerful nation has kind of fallen into dis disarray. It's Things aren't going their way. And so it's a really sad, melancholy kind of violin sound. And as the story progresses, you get to the point where the nation rebounds and gets revitalized. And eventually they're turning around and they're actually going to save another nation called Gondor. And you have this pinnacle moment where in the third movie, the riders of Rohan have all are on their horses and they're ready to ride into battle. And that same theme that was so sorrowful and sad is replayed again but in a victorious manner. And you could tell it's the exact same song, but just played with slightly different instruments, with a slightly different tempo, and the, the vibe that you get from it, the theme goes from being this sorrowful, 
downfall theme to a victorious heroic theme. And that's the idea of recapitulation. You're taking the same thing, summarizing it, and reforming it to mean something else, something entirely different. There's a great breakdown of this exact theme, this kind of recapitulation idea, in a video that I'll link. And it's this guy, totally unrelated to religion, but he breaks down soundtracks and music, and he talks about this recapitulation. And I don't even know if he uses those words exactly, but you can see the, the theme in this video. And... I absolutely love it. It gives me goosebumps every time. So I'll leave a link. Definitely, if you're interested, check it out. It's a great video. But when we apply this recapitulation, you get the theme of in Adam, all have died. There's this downfall happening in all of humanity. And then Christ comes as the new Adam and he recapitulates that story of humanity and redeems it and sets us on a new trajectory. Whereas before in Adam, all have sinned. Now in Christ, all of us have new life. So those are our five potential theories of the atonement. You may have heard of some of them. Hopefully some of them were new to you and you found them interesting. But now we're going to turn a corner and we're going to look at how Lewis describes the atonement in his own personal view. I want to challenge you guys to listen carefully as we go over Lewis's view of the atonement. And in the comments, let me know which of our five theories you think best matches up to Lewis's own theory. So I want to see in the comments what you guys think. And then while you're there, go ahead and like this video and subscribe if you haven't already. If you enjoy the content, there will be more to come. So on to Lewis's theory. As he said, it's not really important which atonement theory you pick. In his opinion, the most important thing to him is that you simply believe that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection has an impact on you personally and that it works. It can save you. Lewis starts off his own theory by admitting that the idea of God punishing someone on behalf of someone else, the penal substitutionary atonement, is a little bit hard of a pill to swallow at face value. But instead, he kind of turns it into a different direction and says, if we think about debtors, the idea of being in debt, it starts to make much more sense. So in chapter four, he writes, if you think of a debt, there is plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. Or if you take, quote, paying the penalty, not in the sense of being punished, but in a more general sense of standing the racket or footing the bill, then, of course, it is a matter of common experience that when one person has got himself into a hole, the trouble of getting him out usually falls on a kind friend. So in Luce's example of debt, if you're in a deep hole of, say, credit card debt, for example, you're in a position where something has got to change. And typically, you need help from an outside source. So whether it's someone buying you a Dave Ramsey course or someone loaning you the money to get out of this credit card debt, if you're in a deep enough hole, you need help to get out of that hole. And so this gives you kind of an idea of humanity in this deep hole of debt. So the natural question Lewis answers next is what kind of debt does humanity owe? What sort of hole have we found ourselves in? And if you remember just to the previous chapter in Mere Christianity, chapter three, which we talked about in the Dark Powers video, Satan has introduced into humanity this idea of rebellion and made us all rebels against God. So this debt that we owe, this hole that we've dug ourselves into is a hole of rebellion, walking away from God and against what he says is the right way to live. And if we're all rebels, how do you change that? A rebel has to stop rebelling. Or in Lewis's words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying that you're sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the only way out of a hole. 
And what he's describing here is the idea of repentance, which is a Christian word that basically just means if you're going in one direction, turning around 180 degrees and going the opposite direction, to turn around and about face, a change in life pattern. This is interestingly what has been preached in the Bible from the very beginning, even slightly before Jesus' ministry. This is what John the Baptist, who believed he was preparing the way for the Messiah, the chosen one, this is what he preached was repentance and baptism. All these Jews from all over Israel were coming to him to repent of their sins, to turn around and turn back to God and be baptized, to be washed in like a ritual cleansing. And then Jesus comes along and he preaches repentance as well. He speaks out, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which you see as a repeated theme in Jesus' own preaching. Then after Jesus, you have the apostles who, for example, Peter preaches an incredibly powerful sermon shortly after Jesus's departure into heaven. And he calls all of the Jewish nation to repent for having killed the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so this theme of repentance, repentance, repentance carries on. And so that's what C.S. Lewis is talking about right here. And Lewis points out that this is not a fun task, nor is it an easy task. Repentance can become kind of a dead word that goes in one ear and out the other. But what it means is all of these patterns of behavior, the lifestyle that you've been walking, a lot of the things that you're comfortable in, and many of the things even that you may love, you need to allow to die. And you need to actively, in fact, kill and start going the opposite direction, start behaving in the exact opposite way. And this can be an incredibly painful and challenging process. And it's at this point that Lewis makes a pretty startling observation. He writes, It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In fact, it needs a good man to repent. And here comes the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. Remember, this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death, is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Very well then, we must go through with it. But that same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. So there's two interesting points made here. The first one right off the bat is that It takes a good person to move in the direction of God, to be humble, to be self-sacrificial, to be generous. It takes a good person to do that, but only a bad person needs to turn into the direction of God and learn to do those behaviors. So the very person who needs to learn those behaviors is unable to do so. And the person who would do those behaviors on their own doesn't need to repent at all. As he says, the very same badness that causes us to need repentance is the thing that prevents us from repenting. And then the second observation he made is something that blew my mind personally, and that is the idea that repentance is not this demand that God is making of you arbitrarily. It's simply a description of what it means to return to God. If I have a child that I want to pick up and hold in my arms, my son, for example, and he is just screaming and kicking and pushing me away, if I tell him, hey, you need to calm down, I'm not making some kind of arbitrary rule that he needs to follow. I'm simply telling him, hey, if you want to be close to me, your father, you need to stop fighting me. It's a simple description of what it means to draw close, to stop fighting. In the same way, repentance is just a description of what it means to stop rebelling. It's not this arbitrary demand God makes of us. It's a description of what it means to return to him. 
And that is just so cool to me. But anyway, since we are rebels, we need to stop rebelling. But since we are rebels, we can't stop rebelling. It's too deeply in us. We need something good to intervene, some kind friend to come and help us get out of our debt. But here we hit another snag that Lewis points out. He writes, But unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God, in his own nature, never does at all, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all, so that the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God, in his own nature, has never walked. This concept, I'm still trying to wrap my head around a little bit, but I've come to think of it in with this analogy. If I had a friend, bear with me here, I, if I live in some kind of Disney world and I have a best friend who is a bird, this bird has grown up. I know him. Say his name is Timmy. Timmy the bird comes to me and says, Stephen, I want to learn how to fly. Can you teach me how to fly? I can read all the books in the world. I can come up with all these theories and what it might help, it, what it might take for him to learn how to fly. But I have never experienced flying myself. It is not in my nature to flap my arms and fly. I'm not a very good teacher for him. It's not in my nature to do what he's asking for help with. And so he needs another bird to teach him. In a similar kind of way, it's not in the nature of God to submit, to suffer, to kill part of himself in order to repent. That's not in him. He's perfectly good, perfectly holy. He doesn't know evil or sin himself. And so for us, we need to learn those things. And we need someone good like God to help us. But he doesn't have it in him, just like I don't have flying in me. So how do we address this problem? And this is where we get the title of this chapter, The Perfect Penitent. But supposing God became a man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was a man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. We cannot share in God's dying unless God dies. And he cannot die except by being a man. This is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. So this is the perfect penitent, the perfect person who repents, Jesus Christ. Perfect because he's God. Therefore, he's able to do the good, but needs to do the good because he's a man. Not because he had sin, but because he experienced all of humanity, that he experienced temptation, that he experienced pain, that he experienced evil. He was able to perfectly repent, and he didn't need to repent. And therefore, he's a perfect stand-in between us, we who need to repent, and a holy God who has no experience of that whatsoever. He's the perfect mediator, the perfect penitent. And this is really important for us to understand that Jesus was both God and man. There's a really cool quote by Gregory of Nazianzus, a theologian of the 300s, the 4th century. And he said, For that which he has not assumed, being Jesus, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. And this is in the context of people starting to think that perhaps Jesus had a physical body, but a divine mind. And Gregory's responding and saying, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And so if Jesus came in, in a human body, but still had a divine mind, then he's not healing the human mind and all our imperfections in this mind. He needs to be fully God in order to do the work and fully man in order to properly redeem those of us who need to be redeemed, which is everyone. 
So that is Lewis's personal theory of the atonement. And he reminds us once more at the end that the most important thing is that you believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, those facts reunite you with God. All the theories that can be had as to how exactly it works, those are secondary. He writes, Such is my own way of looking at what Christians call the atonement. But remember, this is only one more picture. Do not mistake it for the thing itself. And if it does not help you, drop it. The thing itself is the salvation that Jesus offers us. The way exactly it works, while being important and helpful to our understanding and our faith, it's not the thing itself. And if you come across a theory that doesn't work for you and makes it harder for you to believe in the goodness of God, by all means, drop it. My name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies. Thank you.